Miss the show, no worries. On point and on this podcast, kids are back to school, but a memo sent out to parents shows that draconian masking rules are making lunchtime a nightmare for kids who are being forbidden from talking or leaving their desks and who will be reported if they dare talk without a mask on. European countries are abandoning masking because data shows it does nothing to stop spread. Yet here we are insisting on further damaging kids with all of this kabuki theater. I look at it as abuse. As we inch closer to a Russian invasion, Canadian officials are being warned to get our critical infrastructures ready in case of cyber attacks by Russia. We are talking things like hospital systems, our power grid, or even water systems. This is an area where Canada has been warned many times that we are vulnerable, and yet we will talk to one expert who says, hey, they are already coming after us. We'll also talk to the man responsible for minding our dollars and cents who tabled a report on the same day that the Prime Minister says he will confront rising inflation by stimulus money spending and giving Canadian more supports. He says it's not justified, it'll make things worse. But Yves Giroux also reveals the government of transparency is waiting months to table receipts for its spending, which is making it impossible to know how to approve all these spending measures and the real state of our books. And the Premier announces all these reopening plans for the provinces, yet elective surgeries are still cancelled. How is it we can go to a sporting event or have a beer, which we should be doing, but if we need life-saving surgery? That's a firm no. Let's get talking. We're seeing a positive trend. We're uh, still very cautious. And I always say we aren't out of the woods yet, but we're taking a cautious approach to move forward. And uh, I'm, I'm confident uh, that we're going to uh, move forward cautiously and uh, get things back to normal as quickly as possible. Cautious is one thing, but these halfway measures are simply nonsensical. Alex Pearson with you on this very, very busy Thursday, January 20th, and a lot of moving parts today. So it is great to have you along, and uh, I will be going through these. These reopening plans that... Uh, I get that there's a balance, you know, that Doug Ford needs to strike, but frankly, I just fail to see how this snail's pace for reopening makes any sense, given, you know, we're the most vaccinated province in this country. But I do want to start on something that I don't think a lot of parents know is actually happening in their kids' schools. And a letter is circulating on Twitter from a grade one class in Toronto that was sent home to parents informing them that uh, kids at lunch can't talk to each other. And it says, in part, quote, children are expected to face the front at all times in their seat, raise their hand if they need help opening their food, and once they eat, they're to put their mask back on before speaking. If a child speaks, their mask is off, their name will be recorded, and parents will be contacted to review COVID safety rules. <laughs> I read that and I was like, excuse me? I mean, the person who released the letter questioning this stated quite correctly, in looking out for the interests of our children, we've completely missed the forest for the trees. But I will go further, stating that this is nothing short of lunacy. It is just frankly abusive. And I hadn't heard about this, but I started poking around, only to learn that this is an arbitrary rule that's been happening in some schools across this province for months, but I asked my own son, hey, what's going on at lunch in your school? And apparently this has started happening in his school upon his return on Wednesday. And the justification is that, well, lunch is the greatest risk for spread. Really? And how do, how do all these educators know this? 
We're not even tracking cases. So that's just nonsense. But how is it even keeping kids safe? When you look at some of the tools we have now, I mean, 50% of kids 5 to 11 have at least one vaccine. Kids 12 to 17 are 83% fully vaccinated and 86% have at least one dose. But 90% of all Canadians are now fully vaccinated. We have more protection now than in any other time of this pandemic, which includes testings, kids that are now being sent home with kids, and yet we're still subjecting children to what I see as apocalyptic abuse, despite the fact that this variant is more mild and kids who get it are not getting seriously ill. Even kids who are hospitalized are being treated and then quickly released. Kids needed to go to school because not only is it essential to their learning, but it's also about their mental health. But I don't know what good we're doing them if they are being returned to a world of fear where they're just being filled with anxiety should they dare utter an unmasked word to their little friend. I mean, it's gross. And public school teacher Stacy Lance wrote what I think is a must-read piece for every parent, and uh, she penned it for Substack. And she explains that once schools returned after the first lockdown, some of her observations of what she was seeing, which were students who were less motivated, um, unable to concentrate, some no longer bothered to show up. And in part, she writes, quote, it felt like there was no longer life in the building. Maybe it was the masks that made it so no one wanted to engage in lessons or even talk about how they spent their weekends, but it felt cold and soulless. My students weren't allowed to gather in the halls or chat between classes. They still aren't. Sporting events, clubs and graduations were all canceled. These may not sound like, these may sound like small things, but these losses, losses were a huge deal to the students. These are rites of passages that can't be made up. And then she further writes, quote, I see that many of my students, especially the female ones, feel a heavy burden of responsibility. Right before Christmas, one of my brightest 12th graders confided in me that she was terrified of taking off her mask. She told me that she didn't want to get anyone sick or kill anybody. She was worried she would be held responsible for someone dying. End quote. She says her kids no longer want to speak in the class. Some want to hide behind their masks because they're ashamed of breaking the rules. This is the damage she saw after the first lockdown, then what, we're into the third? I don't know how this is okay at all. In fact, I'm quite disgusted. And for those asking, well, what's the big deal about masks on kids? Well, there are actually things that happen to children wearing masks all the time. And the UK just uh, issued a report on the efficacy of face masks on kids with the author of the report stating, quote, wearing face coverings may have physical side effects and impair face identification, verbal and nonverbal communication between teacher and learner. There is detrimental impacts on communication in the classroom. So we've got kids of all ages who now can't see any facial expressions. They can't hear what they're being taught. And we've got teachers spending more time telling kids to fix their mask, not say anything, not leave their desk, than on simply teaching the kids school and life skills. 
And the report further says there's no evidence masks are effective. Cloth masks, which kids often wear, are utterly useless. They don't spread, stop the spread of the virus at all. And N95 masks don't help either because they don't properly fit children's faces. And the data in the UK report mirrors a study out of Spain, which also found the same thing, which is why you're seeing the UK and European countries now abandoning masks. And the WHO, in their guidelines, they advise against masks for kids under six and only suggest selective masking for kids under 11 and who have underlying health issues. Yet here we are in the most vaccinated and most locked down province on the planet, insisting kids cover their faces with this mask masquerade so that those in charge look like they're taking action. It's clear by now, you know, that Omicron is going to get us all. It's going to infect everyone, even, if, even those of us who have been fully vaccinated. So I don't understand why we would insist on doing more damage to children than we need to. I don't know, is this to make the unions happy? Is this to please the never-ending hysterical TV doctors? I mean, why not? Why stop at masks? I think maybe we should just force children to hold their breath while indoors. I mean, we don't yet have the long-term data to show the damage we've caused to generations of children in this country, especially in Ontario and I'd add in Quebec. But I assure you, the reckoning is coming. But what we know now is that masks are an utter sham and they do cause damage. For months, we have been filling children full of fear and robbing them of their childhood. And as far as I'm concerned, and I think most parents probably agree but just can't say it, it is time kids of all ages start to see smiles and a trusting face instead of being filled with apocalyptic doom. And it's time that parents start speaking up for their kids who clearly no longer feel they have a voice and now see this lunacy as normal which should be the sounding of the alarm bells for all of us. So there you go. Those are my feelings on that. It's been bugging me for a while. But uh, again, I don't understand why we would do more damage to these kids than need be. But uh, parents, I think, would like to know this information. We firmly oppose uh, Russian aggression and military action against Ukraine. We reject Russia's false narrative that Ukraine or NATO are threats. The EU and Canada are both important partners in this process, in this process alongside many others. The recently launched diplomatic process offers Russia two options. They can choose meaningful dialogue or swift, severe consequences. Mm-hmm. All right. That is uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, who has been uh, overseas meeting with NATO officials all week. And Russia's response to uh, our threats? Well, the Russian ambassador said, quote, nobody cares about the threats of Western sanctions. So they aren't exactly quaking in their boots. But, um, you know, as Rish Russia uh, inches closer to invading Ukraine, an ominous warning was issued that we told you about late Wednesday night. And this is Canada's cyberspace agency, which said it's aware of Russian-backed foreign cyber threats 
aimed at targeting things like Canadian critical infrastructure networks. And that means, you know, uh, cyber attacks on possible hospital networks, energy grids, water systems, basically the things we need to survive. And um, annual reports from Canada's cyberspace agency show that Canada has been vulnerable in this area for some time. And the more talk of economic sanctions and retaliation by NATO, Russia is expected to retaliate by attacking and disrupting our systems. And of course, this all comes at a time when we are waiting to see Russia's next move. Christian Luprecht, a professor at the both Miller, I can't talk tonight, sorry. Let me try that again. Christian Leprecht is a professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's also a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Haven't talked to him in a while, so I'm glad he's on tonight. Hi, Christian. Good evening, Alex. All righty. All right. So uh, lots of kind of moving parts today. Um, you know, one of the big stories coming out today before I get into the security issues of this is that uh, the White House, uh, specifically President Biden's up in doing full on damage control because he said yesterday that um, you know, Russian President Vladimir Putin can invade Ukraine with little pushback as long as it's a minor incursion. And now they're trying to undo this damage of like, oh, no, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it like that. But I mean, the bottom line is Russia obviously smells weakness uh, by the West here and NATO. Uh, yeah. So I think the this is sort of a calculated <laughs> move by Putin to see how far he can push the envelope. Uh, and I think this is really what this is about. He's playing on multiple uh, fronts, um, uh, and this is a diplomatic effort to extract concessions uh, from the West in general, but in particular from the United States. He knows that Biden is weak on foreign policy. He knows that Biden is under considerable pressure with midterm elections coming up um, and uh, with a new government in Berlin. I think he's sensing some weakness perhaps and some opportunity to drive a wedge in there uh, and to see if he can get a better deal for himself as uh, his megalomaniac ego wants to rebuild the Soviet empire. Yeah. And so, I mean, they, they can go anytime. Obviously, he spent time amassing all these troops along the border. Um, so I guess we'll wait and see how far he's willing to push this thing. But, um, you know, last night we get this warning about our cybersecurity and infrastructures uh, being, you know, under threat. How, how concerning is this when you see, um, you know, uh, you know, a warning like this come out? Yeah, so I mean, the troops on Russia's border cost Putin nothing, right? So they're an extremely low cost strategy for him to try to see what he can get out of the West. And uh, it might also be a dry run. It might be not that he's not looking to attack this time, that he's looking to attack closer to his re-election 2023. And it might also be a diversion tactic that he might be looking to go after the Baltic states or one of the other sort of vulnerable mm -hmm. partners. And so the well, cyber he effort- can, He can take the Arctic, Christian. Like, why, like, why not take the Arctic? We're not protecting it. <laughs> yeah, it's- um, I, just do that. Um, we've certainly also had to beef up our uh, uh, our surveillance, our capabilities in the Arctic because of his moves there. But I think nobody in their right mind would really want to start a conflict in the, in the Arctic. Um, but the cyber component is uh, a hybrid strategy by an actor who's substantially weaker uh, than the United States and than the Western alliance. And it give, it again, it's like Ukraine, like amassing the 100,000 troops. Cyber attacks are an extremely low-cost strategy, and it allows him to tailor and to target as he chooses. And so if we want to engage in deterrence, we have to send a message that this strategy will not succeed. And we wouldn't be seeing this warning 
from the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, which is basically a storefront from the, for the communications security establishment or signals intelligence agency, coordinated with the US and the UK if we weren't already actively observing Russian attempts to go after critical infrastructure. So I think this has been ongoing for at least a couple of weeks. We've heard rumblings mm-hmm. uh, out of the NSA in the United States. And so it's, I think, part of that same broader, uh, uh, that same broader effort to push the West um, in an asymmetric fashion um, to see how much chaos and how much uncertainty he can create. Well, you know, playing with our power grid or our hospital systems, certainly in minus 40 weather and we're, well, you know, when we're in the middle of a pandemic, certainly could wreak um, emotional, if not psychological damage uh, on a lot of people. So so he can play with people's um, minds in that. I mean, so it wouldn't be the first time Russia had, of course, targeted Canada and the United States in 2020. Um, and they have found some success. I think they had, had gone after um, a Texas-based solar wind uh, farm and, and like they, they, they've attacked Ukraine's uh, government websites and networks and those things. So, so it can work. They don't have to even do that much damage. It's kind of like a psychological warfare. But how, how what would be going on in your mind behind the scenes then at, at the government levels? Like what would they be doing to make sure our critical infrastructure is protected? So what Russia tries to do, it tries to show that we can get you anywhere, anytime. So in Ukraine, when the lights went out, when they went off yeah. to the electricity grid, they deliberately did it in Western Ukraine to demonstrate that no part of Ukraine is safe from the Russians and uh, and from their ability to, to reach relatively far. I think this is what we're seeing here. And we don't know whether this is a solar winds type, highly sophisticated orchestrated attack um, uh, that has already implanted vulnerabilities across various critical infrastructure systems or whether we're just seeing uh, Russian operatives trying to probe our critical infrastructure systems. But clearly, um, the message here is that you can't go home at 4.30 and sort of automate your system and hope that uh, they'll keep you safe, that the Russians are actively trying to target our infrastructure systems uh, and that you need people monitoring 24-7. You need to make sure that you're fully patched up and you need to make sure that your critical systems um, are effectively isolated from the rest of your corporate IT infrastructure uh, and you need to have backups so that if something happens, you can bring it back up online. All this suggests that um, there's a very good idea on the part of Western intelligence agencies uh, what Russian capabilities are and what they're already up to. I mean, we have been warned for a, a couple of decades um, about this, that cyber attacks would be the weapon of choice moving forward in the future. And here we are in the future, um, Christian. And, and and I don't know how seriously those in charge have, um, you know, been about making sure that our systems are, are shored up and, and protected. I mean, we've seen numbers of attacks over the last few years, whether it's uh, hospital systems or, you know, small townships where they have their you know, their offices take it over and they have to pay ransom, whatever. We've seen it happen because clearly there are still vulnerabilities. And so you really wonder, what did we learn from 2003 when uh, our power grid, um, you know, shut down? I mean, back then they were talking about vulnerabilities that we would have to protect these things. Have we gotten better at this? Yeah, so I mean, there's multiple challenges um, that industrial control systems are probably the most vulnerable um, entities because they're the most sought after because it's where you can do disproportionate damage. Um, that's also why the Russians went after solar winds so that you can try to get a privileged access uh, to a disproportionate number of, uh, of servers that uh, will give you a high payoff. So that's, I think, part of the concerns that the Russians have the capability to do, and they've demonstrated that, to do disproportionate damage 
damage that most of the people who are out mm -hmm. there on the web, 98% of the stuff is sort of relatively minor. And with some reasonably good cybersecurity, you can fend people off. Whereas the Russians have shown themselves uh, to be extremely strategic, extremely sophisticated. The solar winds attack is thought to have probably taken two years or so to engineer and about a thousand people. Uh, so the Russians have shown that they're, they have strategic patience and they're trying to go uh, a very long way. And so if they can do solar winds, there's real concern here. Um, and I mean, basically the NSA had said they already know that there are Russian vulnerabilities and implants in certain critical infrastructure systems. It probably means that the NSA knows where at least some of these are, and they've been monitoring the Russians to try to see how they're trying to use these vulnerabilities. So I think uh, what we're seeing here is more, I think, a warning of smaller, medium-sized enterprises, things like public transit systems, all the stuff that the federal government <laughs> doesn't own, but that the federal government, yeah. uh, that citizens will hold the federal government responsible for uh, keeping them safe if it turns out that your transit system or your hospital system isn't going to work tomorrow uh, because the federal government wasn't there to protect it uh, when uh, when it was expected by uh, by Canadian taxpayers. Well, I mean, all Russia has to do is see our mishandling of the pandemic over the last two years, and they'll say, oh, look, look at their response. Uh, clearly, they're not ready, but nonetheless. Uh, always appreciate your time on this, Christian. We will conti you know, continue to watch this thing as it uh, develops and hope for the best and hope that we are prepared for the worst. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Have a wonderful evening. You as well. That is Christian Loprecht, who is with the Royal Military College, also with the uh, Macdonald Laurier Inst um, Institute. So, yeah, hope those in charge have um, been proactive on this because it uh, could definitely be very scary, even the smallest of attack. We put forward uh, our budget uh, a, a, a year ago. Uh, we included uh, specific stimulus spending to move forward uh, to get out of this pandemic. Uh, that uh, continues, but it is it was stimulus spending that would decrease as the economy picked up again, and we've demonstrated uh, that our concern for fiscal responsibility is uh, continuing to be a priority for us. Alrighty, so at the same time we were confronted by new inflation numbers Wednesday, the man responsible for minding our dollars and cents tabled a re report revealing a few troubling things. First of all, the stimulus spending that the Prime Minister justifies, which is $100 billion, can no longer actually be justified because it will, in part, drive up inflation. But there's another $541 billion of new spending that uh, was announced in December. And we're learning that a lot of it is not actually going to COVID spending as was justified. The report also reveals that this government of transparency is not reporting hundreds of billions of dollars in new spending for months at a time. And so it sounds like they're waiting until the very last minute to show the receipts, which is making it impossible for us to know the true state of our books. But it leaves MPs in the dark when it comes to making decisions on all this new spending that's being rushed out the door. Yves Giroux is the parliamentary budget officer. He is the man in charge of minding our dollars and cents in a looks like a challenging job these days. Good to have you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let me start on, um, on, on some of the things that the Prime Minister had said yesterday, which wasn't much. It was fairly nuanced. The, the things that stick out for me are, you know, he kept talking about supports. It's very clear that he plans to continue with the stimulus uh, spending, this $100 billion that was budgeted, I guess, by Christian Freeland last year. And, and you say in your report, uh, it cannot be justified. Well, it's basing. I'm basing that comment on the the, the government's own triggers for determining when that stimulus would be 
wound down. So if people remember correctly, in the fall economic statement in 2020, the government introduced the notion of 70 to $100 billion to jumpstart the economy, so stimulus spending. And they said at that time that they would use fiscal guardrails, and mostly these were uh, labor market indicators, and that the, the stimulus would be wound down when labor market indicators would return to their pre-pandemic level. So fast forward to budget 2021, the government introduced about $70 billion of measures that were stimulus spending. And last December, the Minister of Finance, when she tabled her uh, fiscal update, she she was pretty proud uh, of mentioning that labor market indicators have returned or even surpassed the pre-pandemic levels with the job numbers having fully recovered from the pre-pandemic level. But yet there was no mention anywhere about winding down the economic stimulus. And that's what I pointed out in the report that I released earlier this week, that the government itself said that they would wind down economic stimulus spending when the labor market indicators return to their pre-pandemic level. Now that they are returning to pre-pandemic level, there's no word about winding down any of that spending. But there's also the area of this um, $541 billion that was allocated to new spending for, uh, you know, through to 26-27 of uh, the 2026-2027 year. And I think most of it, if I'm reading your report right, was kind of sold under the guise that this was for pandemic spending and and the response planning. But as you point out, uh, it doesn't look like a lot of that or or a huge chunk of that is going for for COVID response. Well, what we said was that uh, looking at the numbers, there's been about $542 billion of spending announced since the start of the pandemic going into 26-27. And out of these 542, contrary to what people may believe, uh, about Mm -hmm. two-thirds are related to COVID spending, but there's about a third that is not related to COVID-19 spending. So these are new policy initiatives. And I'm not commenting as to whether or not this is bad or good. That's a political judgment for others to pass. But it's a a statement of fact that despite what people might be led to believe, not everything that the government has done over the last two years has been COVID related. Okay, but if I'm an MP who, you know, in the opposition that voted this spending through under the guise that it's going to to COVID uh, response, will they have a case then to come back and say, hold on a second, you told us this money was going to um, you know, uh, helping supports for businesses. Where's that money? Are we going to see that conversation start? Well, the conversation, it's up to parliamentarians to have that. But uh, that and that relates to the other point that I made in the report released earlier this week was that the fact that the government took its time to release its public accounts, waiting until December 14 to release these numbers, um, has a negative impact on MPs' capacity to hold the government to account. So, MPs can hold the government to account when they know what has been spent at the same time that they are being asked to approve quickly new spending. But this year, or rather last year, the government waited until December as opposed to the usual September or October to Mm -hmm. tell MPs and Canadians what was the deficit figure for the year that ended in March. So by December, we still didn't know what was the deficit figure for the year that had ended almost nine months ago. So that's, uh, that's, that's not uh, a stellar example of transparency.
Well, no, I mean, we, I think people forget we haven't had a fully costed budget for two years, which is almost unheard. I think it is unheard of at this point. And um, we've been given these kind of fiscal updates or snapshots, but they don't give us a true understanding of what the books are in Canada, what the state of those books are. We know that we have had massive spending of hundreds of billions rushed out the door, but from what I'm hearing now, uh, there are no real checks and balances. So uh, given that you're not getting, you know, a quick accounting of the dollars and cents in time to kind of see where everything's going, uh, do, we ha do you have any idea what the state of, of our, our books are in this country? Well, we now have a good idea now that the public accounts have been tabled for last year, but it took until mid-December for us to get a clear picture of what the deficit figure amounted to for the year that had ended in March 2021. Uh, for the current year, we have mm -hmm. to rely on the monthly updates that come from the Department of Finance, as well as the fiscal update that the minister tabled in, in, in December. So uh, it's still a work in progress, however, which is not unusual at this period in, in the cycle. But it, it was surprising to see that it took so long for the government to release the public accounts uh, last year. And so given, you know, um, what you've heard from, you know, the prime minister and the direction we're going and given, you know, you see things like inflation going up and you see the situation with the pandemic that just never seems to want to go. Uh, what is your, your greatest concern and, and what do you think Canadians should be mindful of? Well, the government has indicated that its target is now a declining debt-to-GDP ratio over the next couple of years. And, and that's, that's feasible if the economy recovers or if the situation, the pandemic situation goes away and we turn the, we turn the corner on this one. Um, and with the current government spending plans, it's, it's possible to see, it's in fact likely, that we'll see a debt-to-GDP uh, ratio decline. However, the government was recently elected on a platform that included several spending items, which is usually the case in every election. But the, um, the update that the minister tabled in December did not include the vast majority of this, this spending. So we estimate that on a net basis, there's about $49 billion in new spending. And that's not yet reflected in the government's books because they have not announced that. So if the government does indeed proceed with all these electoral promises, and depending at the pace, on the pace at which they proceed with these promises, it could be difficult to see a debt-to-GDP ratio that continues to decline over the next uh, couple of years. So it will depend on whether they, they implement all of these measures and the speed at which they implement these measures. So the government's fiscal anchor of declining debt-to-GDP ratio is not a guarantee yet. Boy, oh boy, so much spending, so many questions and kind of unknowns. It's a, and it's also shocking that the, so many of us have now just kind of been immune to this massive amount of money. Boy, oh boy, um, in some interesting times. Always appreciate your time on this, Eve. And it's always a pleasure. That is uh, Yves Giroux, who is the Parliamentary Budget Officer. He minds our dollars and cents, and I would not want his job. Ugh, that is just uh, a lot of money and a lot of dollars and a lot of questions. Why restaurants, gyms, and movies are reopening before elective surgery is resuming. Well, I'll just repeat what I uh, said earlier on, uh, Richard. Uh, there was three areas of focus. Uh, number one is when we, we saw the uh, hospitalizations double every single week. 
Uh, we saw the positivity rate go right up to 40%. Now we've seen it drop down to 15.9%. And everyone saw the absenteeism uh, in, in your own workplace, not to mention the, the healthcare sector. You know, and we're, we're doing everything we can to make sure we uh, bolster the, the health care system. Well, you know, the premier did not answer that question, but, um, you know, there's no data to tell us if opening up businesses 50% will impact hospitals. But um, look, they've been closed since before Christmas. So we know that small businesses and restaurants are not the culprit of spread. But a lot of people are asking, you know, how is that that we are opening up businesses and sporting events, which I believe we should be doing, yet elective surgeries remain cancelled? Francesca Grosso is a principal over at Grosso McCarthy, which is a healthcare strategy firm, but also the co-author of Navigating Canada's Healthcare. She joins us now. Good to have you. Great to be here, Alex. So what's your reaction to the fact that, you know, elective surgeries are still not, not happening in this province? I was, uh, I was blown away today hearing all the things that were going to be opening and, um, and yet complete utter silence on the part of government for elective surgeries. Elective surgeries, just to reiterate, are not, you know, they can be very, very important surgeries. So mm -hmm. elective surgeries could be cancer surgeries, could be yeah. cataract surgeries, hips and knees. This is, yes, it can also be facelifts, but there was no, not even a single mention about it, and a few reporters asked questions and got answers that weren't, weren't actually answers. And to me, I, I think this is causing so much harm out there. I have had so many patients talking about, you know, all kinds of afflictions that they are in pain, that they, you know, prostate issues where, you know, mm -hmm. third time the surgery has been canceled, you know, people who are just devastated. And yet, you know, we have a policy out there that I got to be honest, and I hope we get around to talking about this. I don't even understand what the benefit of it is. There is no good reason or any good proof that this does anything other than harm people. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the choice, I guess, or the decision to stop elective surgeries, as I understand it, was done under the guise that, you know, it, it would stop putting strain on the system and that those frontline workers could possibly move into the healthcare system and help, you know, shore up the front lines. But that's not actually what is happening. I mean, you can't just transfer staff over to different areas, but that is not what is not what happening. And to your right. point, you know, we've got young women like Cassandra, uh, you know, who has stage four cancer having to come to the media to get medical care in this province now. I mean, to basically beg for medical care that, that she should have every right to get. Let me tell, let me, let me say something, and maybe I'm being a little bit cynical here, but this is not the first time the government did this directive. They've done it before. And I truly believe that if they had actually any data that showed that it really made a big difference, we would have heard about it by now. And no one can say it. And you're absolutely right, uh, Alex. That you raised one of the one of the problems they're trying to solve. You know, but there are others too. And you're absolutely right in saying that every explanation that I have heard to how this helped, I can honestly say there's no proof that it actually is helping. And in fact, sometimes it is truly a theoretical idea. Let me give you an example. One of the reasons they say that they have to protect the hospital capacity through this directive of shuttering surgeries everywhere. So that means in hospital and also outside of hospital, in private clinics, 
clinics that do eye surgeries. For example, Kensington, that's a really good example. They do all kinds of eye surgeries, cataracts, all covered by OHIP. They can't operate. Well, one of the one of the reasons is, well, we don't want people coming into the emergency room from these clinics. Now, let me ask you, how many people do you think have gone to Kensington Eye Clinic to get a cataract removed and ended up in the emergency room? I think mm-hmm. zero would be a high number. Another thing that they talk about is how, oh, if they shut all of these clinics, everybody's going to run to the hospital to work. Well, you've already pointed out that that didn't, well, it didn't happen last time, and it won't happen because a lot of the surgeons are already affiliated with hospitals because a lot of the nursing staff don't want to work in hospitals and the government Mm -hmm. can't force them to. So they come up with these reasons and I kind of feel it's a little bit about why don't we try to solve something theoretically and if it doesn't work in practice, we we just double down. I kind of feel sadly that the government has lost the narrative on this and they've got to find their voice again because right now we have, I believe, people in ivory towers making directives that don't make sense. And I, I just, I'll say this, what most people probably realize, hospitals already have the authority mm-hmm. to cancel surgery. They did not need an edict from government affecting everybody. They already had the ability to do it. So what does this directive bring to the table other than force people to have their surgery postponed and delayed? Right. I really so basic. Yeah, I mean, basically, we're either allowing people to die or get sicker, and ultimately, that will put more strain on the system. Uh, yeah. But it sounds like you know we're now creating a healthcare system in this country, and we're just not being honest about it. That if if we all can't get surgery or or treatments, then no one can. Well, that that is another big problem that I have is that we've gotten to a nanny state situation with this directive that if. If somebody can't because they happen to be getting surgery in a hospital that really does have capacity problems and has to push them off, okay, which, by the way, has happened before COVID as well, that nobody can get it. It's an all or nothing. It is, I hate to say this, a typical bureaucratic solution that in its, you know, it's the equal treatment of, you know, of unequals. It's it's imposing something on everybody. And, you know, lockdowns, the OMA just recently published a survey. The number one concern are, for Ontarians, are the backlogs of surgeries. That's the number one concern that they had of everything on the list, including the economy. How is this going to help the the backlogs that we face right now, which are just absolutely off the charts. I would love to see a media that is asking really hard questions about this directive and asking for really hard answers in terms of give us numbers of what this accomplished, because I don't believe there are any. Well, as we've seen too often in this pandemic, we get nothing but spin and talking points that go unchallenged because uh, they've made sure it goes unchallenged. But nonetheless, uh, it is a conversation we will have. Very much appreciate your um, your thoughts and uh, your reaction to this today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Alex. Take care. That's Francesca uh, Grosso, who is asking that question a lot of us are, is, you know, how, how are these decisions being made other than to make those in charge look like they're doing their job? It's not. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting 630 Sharp. I'm Alex Pearson. This is On Point.